Good morning. Praise God. I, I just have to thank him for the song selection and for the choir. What a blessing they are to us. Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses. We will see many names in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but the four we want to focus on this morning are the four women mentioned in the first 11 verses. Four women who were plucked from the fire. This is the precious and true word of the Lord. Please follow along as I read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Have you ever wondered why the numerous listing of names in the, of the ancestors in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, no, it's not to help you sleep at night. It's because the Jewish people needed to establish a person's inheritance, a person's legacy, a person's rights, a person's heritage. For example, they needed to know if they were truly Jewish, a partaker of the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and part of the chosen people by God. They also needed to know what tribe you uh, belong to for the purposes of inheriting land. For a person to inherit land in a particular uh, uh, tribal area, evidence was required that you belong to that particular tribe. Furthermore, they needed to know if you're, you were qualified to serve in the Levitical priesthood. Priests could only come from the tribe of Levi through Aaron, the brother of Moses. And finally, and most importantly, the genealogies were necessary in tracing the line of the Messiah because the Messiah had to come from the line of King David, even according to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22, verse 42. Uh, it was said that he would be of uh, David through David's seed. So uh, keeping records were vital. Now, how many of you have read the first nine chapters of First Chronicles? Show of hands first nine chapters of Chronicles. And you know, uh, you know that um, it is a listing of names, names and names, names you can't pronounce. We're probably, probably pronouncing them wrong, and we'll find out in heaven, but we try to persevere through them. And it's, it's hard, but there's a blessing in it. And if you ever meet someone 
who says, I have an excellent reading plan and I get through the Bible in a year with no problem. You ask them, what about the first nine chapters of First Chronicles? Have you read every verse in every chapter? And then look at them real close. Watch to see if their uh, lips start trembling a little bit or if they form beads of sweat on the top of their forehead. And then ask them again real slow. Are you sure you read every verse of every chapter in First Chronicles one through nine. And some will confess. They will actually say, no, nah, you know what? I did skip a couple of uh, verses. It was, it was just so hard. And yes, like I said, it is hard, but there is a blessing in it. So my three points for today's sermon are sorrow in the midst, I mean, sorry, sovereignty in the midst of sorrow. That's point number one, sovereignty in the midst of sorrow. Point number two, providence in the midst of uh, priorities, your priorities, and um, election in the midst of your emotions, in the midst of your emotions. So uh, would you pray with me and for me? Father, I am weak, and I can only do this through your power. I am small, Lord God, but you are large, and I pray that I would show that this morning, how great and magnificent you are. And that your son would, would come forth through everything that is said, Lord God. And if there's, an, if there's any error, I, I pray you would remove it, Lord God. And, and, or the people would forget it. And the things that are sound, the things that are biblical, that it would remain. I pray that I do a, a, a good job that represents the text well. I need your help, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point one, sovereignty in the midst of sorrow. I'll read verse one again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's, if you, if you, if you compare this to uh, the Septuagint, the LXX, um, to Genesis, if you compare Matthew one to Genesis chapter one, uh, verse one, and Genesis chapter five, verse one, they use the same word. Um, the word genealogy in the Greek is the same word used for Genesis, meaning beginning or origin or generations, right? So in chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations or genealogy of Adam. So that Genesis begins with the first Adam who became a living being, but the gospels begin with the last Adam. Jesus Christ, who's the giver of life to all beings. And I can only imagine how the attention level of the Jewish Christians who were hearing this read increased once they heard the words Biblos Geneseos, book of beginnings, because it's making a claim that this book of Matthew is, is of the same authority as the first book of the Bible. Book of beginnings but of Jesus Christ. Let's pay attention to this. This opening statement, it means something. It meant much more to them than it means to us. But not only that, it goes on to say that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus was common in Israel, um, so they had to add that attachment. For instance, in Colossians 4.11, you have uh, Jesus, J Justice, who was surnamed uh, uh, Jesus, 
who was a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. Then there's also the sorcerer or false prophet Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13. Then there are those who believe that Barabbas' full name is Jesus or was Jesus Barabbas. So it was necessary, once again, to state that this Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. But Matthew doesn't stop there. He further describes him as the son of David. And this would evoke images of a royal lineage, someone who would reestablish the throne for the Israelites, someone who would lift them above all the nations upon the earth where they thought they were supposed to be. Then he goes on to say, he's the son of Abraham. Now, I don't believe he's making the point that David is the son of Abraham as you read it, and yes, he definitely is the son of Abraham. But here I believe he's stressing the fact that the Christ, who was the son of David, was also the son of Abraham. By stating that Christ was descended, descended from both of these renowned patriarchs meant that it was in Christ that the fulfillment of the promises to both of these patriarchs was fulfilled. Matthew was saying to everyone who would read this, that this is the one, this is him. It's the equivalent of John the Baptist baptizing, looking up and seeing Jesus coming from afar off and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At that proclamation, everybody within his uh, hearing range should have stopped in their tracks bow down and begin to worship, but they didn't. Verses two and three. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Once again, Matthew being Jewish, brings Christ's genealogy down from Abraham. It's a descending genealogy because God had taken Abraham and his seed into an intimate covenant. Luke, on the other hand, in Luke chapter 3, traces Jesus' genealogy up all the way up past Abraham right to Adam. It's an ascending genealogy. One begins with Jesus, the other ends with Jesus because Jesus is the focal point. Now here in verse 3, we have Tamar, the first of four women that we will be uh, discussing this morning. Now who is she? Her story is found in Genesis 38. You can turn there if you want, but I'll give you a brief overview. Because there we learn that Jacob's fourth son, Judah, had three sons of his own. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar married Ur, but then Ur died. But for some form of comfort to be given, Judah gives her his brother, Onan. And this was called a leveret marriage and was instituted by God so that the widow would have a way of perpetuating her husband's lineage and inheritance through the birth of a son through the closest relative, which in this place, case was her brother-in-law. However, her brother-in-law took advantage of her sexually and didn't fulfill his duty, which was wicked in the sight of God. So the text says, God killed him. What about grace? God killed him. 
Grace is given at God's discretion. The last son, Sheila, two brothers are gone, so the last son, Sheila, was too young to be given to her. So Judah told Tamar to go back to your father's house for a time. And when Sheila is old enough, you can have him. So you don't have to worry. Just, just wait. Just wait. That was the promise to Tamar. You're going to be all right. But many years go by, and now Sheila is all grown up. Judah has broken his promise to Tamar and leaves her husbandless, childless, and hopeless for the moment. Filled with sorrow, she takes matters into her own hands. She takes off her widow's garments and puts on the garments of a prostitute. Then she goes looking for Judah and winds up getting impregnated by Judah himself. What a mess. In the midst of the untimely death of her husband, in the midst of being used sexually and deceived, in the midst of being forgotten by her father-in-law, and even though she was engaged in some weird form of prostitution, God was still sovereign in the midst of her sorrows. God's will will be accomplished despite man's unrighteousness. From that pregnancy, Perez is born. And graciously, God placed him in the line of Jesus the Messiah. Now, over the years, I have counseled a couple of people, only a couple of people, who God graciously saw them the other side of their trials, of their great trials, um, as God worked in their lives, if we would have been in their shoes and didn't get to see the other side, we would be crushed if we didn't keep our eyes on Christ. And sometimes you have to work so hard to keep your eyes on Christ. I can think of two. One was a gentleman who uh, wasn't that great of a husband. Hard man, very hard man. One day while working, this self-employed man had a stroke. He had a stroke. After about 30 days, I'm giving you the real abbreviated version, after about 30 days laying on his back, not knowing whether he was going to pull through or not, whether he was going to wake up in hell or not, God was gracious on him and raised him up from the bed. After another few months of learning how to talk and learning how to walk all over again, he became a much better husband a much better husband, a much better uh, 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 father. And he got to see a glimpse, only a glimpse, of what God does to people on the other side. And even his life is not over, but in the meantime, he had a quote-unquote second chance. Then there is another lady, I was about to call her name, but I, I won't, um, you might know her, who was a rebellious teen and young adult. Her mother and father and sister were grieved at her behavior. She would get on her boyfriend's motorcycle and go out of state somewhere and tell nobody nothing. Until this one fortunate day, she was on the motorcycle and the next thing she remembers is waking up in the hospital, unable to move. What she was told that happened is she fell off the back of the motorcycle and was dragged some 100 feet. And all she knew was she could not move from the neck down. Today she's 39. That happened at 21. She has her ups and downs, but she sees how she's a worshiper of the one who saved her from a life 
of rebellion and eternity in hell. And she worships God. It doesn't mean every day is great. There are still the why me questions that will pop up because of the flesh. But then there is the solitude within. There's the steady worship within that says, thank you, Lord. In the midst of me not being able to walk from here to there, in the midst of me sitting in this wheelchair, in the midst of my mother having to push me, my 80-year-old mother having to push me in this wheelchair, you are still good. But you, but me, may never get to see the other side. We may just struggle, we may cry, and we may never get to see the other side, but with everything in you, you must try your hardest to believe God knows what he's doing midst of this You have to. You have to keep going. You have to just fight and say, I know God is good. I know he's good. He's too good. I, I, we get this idea that God owes us something. The scriptures tell, tell me that we're dead in sins and trespasses. The scriptures tell me we're like all buried deep in a cemetery and God comes by and chooses who he wants to awaken. How dare us say, Lord, why don't you save everybody? Why don't you awaken everybody? How dare we? God says, I have mercy on whom I will have mercy on. Trust that God is crafting you, molding you, getting out whatever does not look like him. Let's continue. Matthew 1, verses 4 and 5. As we move on to point number two, providence in the midst of our priorities. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Nashon was the brother of Elisheba, who was Aaron's wife. At the time of the Exodus, he was the leader of the children of Judah, according to 1 Chronicles 2.10. And if you skip over the genealogies, you would have missed that. Jewish legend said he was the first to walk on the dry land between the waters of the Red Sea. Can you imagine the faith it took to be the first one to step into an area where there was just water? Honestly, I don't know if I had that kind of faith. I might have done what is called the tiptoe lean. You know, you, you, you step out and you look. You know, you, you're looking because the water is like, it's far away, but you know there was just water here. And it, it took an incredible amount of faith. And I praise God that he raised up the faith in that young man to start with what would be a mass exodus. So from Nashon came Salmon. After they conquered Jericho, Salmon met a Canaanite woman who heard about the God of Moses and feared him. That fear turned to love because God spared her life. This woman's name was Rahab. She was a prostitute in her past life, but by the time she met Salmon, uh, God had done a work in her. and She became a worshiper of God, proclaiming, proclaiming him to be the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab has an amazing testimony as we look at the second woman in this list. Before the Jews um, entered the land west of the Jordan, Joshua sent two spies, you know the story, to uh, look over the land. The king of Jericho heard about the two spies being there and sent people out to see who the 
who these guys were and what are they doing. Rahab protected them by hiding them on the roof. She told the spies how the citizens of Jericho had been fearful, how everyone in the city's heart had melted because of the victories that God gave them. Even 40 years ago, she had heard about the great exodus from Egypt, and she heard about the recent victory over the two kings of the Amorites, and the people were in a panic mode. But she decided to help them escape. But she had a couple of conditions, three conditions, right? Only if they spared her and her family. And the spies had conditions of their own. She had one uh, uh, condition, but she agree agreed to what they said should be done. They told her, you must distinguish your house from the others by hanging out a, a, a red cord, a scarlet cord, a rope from your window so we would know which house to spare. Then her family must be inside the house during the battle. And number three, she must not later turn on the spies. So when Israel came and attacked, they destroyed the entire city. Every building laid down. Every man, woman, and child were killed. Only Rahab and her family were spared. Some would say, wow, she was so lucky. She just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But we know better. It was all by the hand of God's providence. Take Rahab's location. It was near the gate, and the ESV says it was in the wall. From her point of view, it was a great location for her business. If you've read the story, you know her business, and that was top priority. Being in the gate, I mean in the wall, by the gate, made it easy for visitors to come by and stop by and get to know her better. It made it easier when the soldiers came back from war. Before going home, they could stop by Rahab's place and get to know her better. It may have even been through those interactions with these men that she heard of the Almighty God of Israel, how he was so powerful and how they came back fearful that the Lord was doing incredible work for these strange and peculiar people. Yes, her location was her top priority, but the word of God teaches that God's providence rules over our priorities in the midst of our priorities. It was God's providence that placed her in that location. It was by God's providence that he sent the spies and they got her, found her, and saved her and spared her. Now, when it comes to Rahab's character, some Jewish literature like the Targum tries to hide the fact or try to hide the fact that she was a prostitute. Because in the Targum, whenever it mentions uh, Rahab the harlot, they call her Rahab the innkeeper. Rahab the innkeeper, believe it or not, right? But the attempts to show that she was not a harlot is not warranted, right? Whether you look in the, in the Hebrew or in the Greek of the LXX or in the epistle to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1131 or in the epistle to, of James, uh, James 225, they all refer to her as a harlot or a prostitute. And I love the fact that God saves prostitutes. I love that fact, right? Many have this idea that God only saves nice people, 
That's why some of us are so fearful of telling our evil family members and people who are not that nice on the job. We hesitate to talk about the things of God at the barbecue with our crazy cousin Raymond because he's not going to listen. I don't want to talk to him. He's too evil. And we think things like they'll never change. Quickly forgetting that we used to be that. Quickly forgetting that we didn't want to hear anything about God or Jesus or a cross. We don't, want to, we don't want nothing to do with that. But God is not limited by our expectations. God is able to save the wickedest to the utmost. God has, God's providence has ways of saving people that you would never dream of. And I want you to think about Ruth. The next woman in our list, uh, she's a great example of this. Her second husband, Boaz, is Rahab and Salmon's offspring. But unlike Tamar and Rahab, the scriptures don't delve into any particular sins that she may have had. However, because she was a Moabite, she belonged to a people, according to Deuteronomy 23 and 3, that were cursed by God up until the 10th generations. And because her culture did not promote anything resembling godliness, we can't expect her to just all of a sudden of her own want God. Something had to happen. By the providence of God, her first marriage was to a man who belonged to an Israelite family while they were living in Moab. Unfortunately, or should I say providentially, this husband died along with his uh, brother and his father. So, so much for the leveret marriage. There's nothing there for Ruth. But Ruth had a decision to make because her mother-in-law was going back to her country. Her mother-in-law was going back to Judah. So Ruth had a decision to make, but for her it was no great decision. She knew the God of that family, her new family. She, 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 she heard about that God. As far as we know, she had never been to the land of Judah, but they brought Judah to her and the God of Judah to her, and she wanted that God. Listen to us. People may not come to your church, but you have to bring God to them, Christ to them. Speak to them. Don't be afraid to share the gospel. Don't be afraid to show them the gospel in you. Don't be afraid to say, I was wrong when you sinned, and they see it. Don't be afraid to say, that's not how God would have me to act, because Christ saved me. I shouldn't have said that to you. What you have just done is you've planted a seed into what Christianity is. People think we're supposed to be perfect, so when we're not perfect, they say, look at that hypocrite. But when you say something wrong to somebody, or if they hear you do something, or about you doing something, and you are convicted in your heart, and you know that was the wrong thing to do, you let everybody within that area who heard you know, I was wrong. I worship God through Christ, and I should not have done what I did. You plant a seed that you don't even intend to plant. Through your error, you show redemption, the redemption that God gives us. That's attractive. That's attractive. Naomi thinking, I don't have any more sons for you. Don't, 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 don't follow me. Naomi urged her to stay with your family. But no. She said, do not urge me to leave. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. 
and your God will be my God. Wow. Faith, what a statement. I'm going to follow you. I'm starting to love this God that you serve. Praise God for that. Long story short, God rewarded her faithfulness by giving her not only another husband, he gave her a godly husband. Not only a child, but a, a blessed, I can't see how it's going to happen, child. Who would one day be the progenitor of Jesus, proving once again that the word of God is true when it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that? We're told this in another way in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Many of you know it well. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he may be the firstborn of many brothers. And some of you in the back, I hear you thinking, what does that have to do with Ruth? Everything. Everything. Her father-in-law dies. Her first husband dies. His brother dies. She then goes with uh, Naomi to Judah who helped to orchestrate her relationship with a member of her family named Boaz, who married her and gave her a son who would be in the line of Jesus. All of these things work together for good. She was predestined and called for this purpose. She couldn't see it when her husband died. Being a widow today is hard. Ten times worse being a widow then. It meant that there was an almost certainty that you were going to be in poverty, especially if you didn't have a son. This is amazing. The providence of God once again has ways of saving people you never even thought about. God's plan in saving people is to take us from point A, ungodly, self-centered sinners, to point B, a royal priest before him, specially handpicked by God as you were on your way to hell. God's eternal plan of redemption, before he said, let there be light, he called your name and put it here on his list. And here's the one that I'm going to preserve. First Peter 3, 4. Uh, I'm going to, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to keep this one. I'm going to uh, preserve them. Reserved space for them with me, undefiled, incorruptible, cannot be taken away. That's what we are to focus on. Every day you wake up, let that be what motivates you to rejoice in your salvation, to triumph and trump through your tribulation. Like I said, you may never get to see the other side, but Every fiber in you has to say, I know my God loves me. That's why I'm going to be constant in prayer, constant in thanksgiving, loving God, telling people what God has done for me. 
with the same joy that you talk about LeBron James, the same passion when you look at Tom Brady, maybe not Tom Brady, the same, same passion of any of your favorite sports figures. Jesus paid the price for me. Our goal is not the fleeting pleasures of this life and chasing after what the world calls success. The perfect husband, the perfect wife, perfect children, perfect house. If that's what you're chasing, your pursuit will never end. Your wife will never be good enough. Your husband will never live up to your expectations, so forth and so on. You're looking at everybody else's uh, children in church, and they're so well-behaved, walking perfectly when it's time to go, and your children are all over the place. And you're like, oh, Lord. You can't keep looking for the perfect whatever. Jesus is perfect. He's righteous. We're all sinners, so let me show grace. Let me show mercy. Praise the Lord, God. God says, be conformed into the image of my son. That's what he says. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. That's why you were predestined. Seeing your life transform more and more into the image of Christ creates a wellspring of joy inside of you. Why? Because you know that God is working in you and it creates this great love for him. It creates something that, 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 that how... You say, how can I have been so ungrateful? The more you're changed, the more you see, I, I, I don't curse like I used to. Well, God, you're so good. I don't, I don't exaggerate, lie like I used to. God, I praise you because I know I couldn't do it on my own. I used to be so, 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 so short-tempered. I, I used to be a thief. I used to be a liar. I used to be lazy. But God, I love you. Jesus, thank you. That's what being transformed does. It creates this joy in you because you know God is personal. He's not just this being out there, deism. He's not just somebody who set the clock and let it go and just left you on your own. He loves you personally. Personally. That's your motivation every time you get up in the morning. He loves me. Now let me love someone else. He loves me. Let me give him the praise right where I am. Praise the Lord God. Let's move on to point number three. Election in the midst of our emotions. Emotions. Verse six says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, although the original translation does not have Bathsheba's name in it, if you know the story and the context, you know that He's speaking about Bathsheba. That's why the, the, the New American Standard inserts her name there. It says Bathsheba uh, is the wife of Uriah, right? So for those who don't know the story, shame on you. But uh, the story of David and Bathsheba, I'll give you a quick overview. It was the time of year that kings went to war. But for whatever reason, David didn't go. He sent uh, his commander, Joab. And uh, the thing about it is some say that he was too busy playing Fortnite. Did you hear that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, that, that must have been a bad translation. Maybe it was Call of Duty. I'm not sure which, which one. But one day after taking a nap, because he had been playing so long. Just scratch that from the recording. But, but what happened is, you know, he went for a walk on the roof after taking a nap. And he sees a beautiful woman 
on the roof, bathing. And some say, well, why would she be on the roof, naked, taking a bath? And I'm like, well, her name is Bathsheba. What <laughs> but anyway, in uh, those parts of the world at that time, it was no strange thing to take a basin of water to the roof and, 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 and bathe yourself. But unfortunately, King David was home. And it's doubly unfortunate that he would be watching her from the roof and struck by her beauty. So he has her brought to his palace, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant, tries to pass it off as if it's her husband's child, but her husband, her, her husband Uriah is more loyal than him, doesn't go home, so the plan fails, so David has him killed. How could a man after God's own heart behave so ungodly? Before we stay uh, judging him too harshly this morning, um, here's something to remember, especially for those of us who like to dabble in sin right, right on the line. We'll step in and step out thinking that I'm not going to stay too long there. I'm going to have a, a little fun. Think about this. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever meant to stay, and cost you more than you can ever repay. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever meant to stay, and cost you more than you can ever repay. So how did God respond to his chosen king's sinful actions? Well, let's listen to Nathan the prophet tell David how God planned to chasten him for his sins. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 15. From 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. New American Standard Version. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of your Raya the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed you have, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. The first thing David said when he was confronted by Nathan concerning his sin is, I have sinned against the Lord. And if you have ever read Psalm 51, that's one of the places where you see David's brokenness over his sin. He was emotionally torn. But I'm so glad that God's unconditional election rules even in the midst of our emotions. Your salvation is not based on how you feel, or worse yet, it's not based on how somebody else feels about you. It's based on the righteousness of Christ and how he 
kept the law perfectly, not you. But what about Bathsheba? What part does she play in this? Was she guilty for committing adultery with the king? Because it takes two. And was she in on the plot to make her husband think that it was really his child? Maybe we don't know. Or could it have been that she was emotionally overwhelmed that her husband just died and then the, the, the baby she was expecting dies? We have no idea. But what we do know is that God took a woman of relative obscurity and elected her to eventually give birth to King Solomon, who would end up being a pivotal player in the genealogy of Jesus, our Lord. Seeing how God worked wonders in the lives of these four women who were plucked from the fire should motivate us to worship him all the more. Like the Apostle Paul, after he finishes spending 11 chapters teaching and, and, and speaking about the sovereignty, the providence, and election of God in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he ends chapter 11 with a beautiful doxology, a short hymn of praise, and says, we sung it, we spoke it, all oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or unknowable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory to him be the glory. Besides ourselves, how many people have we seen change through the sovereignty, providence and election of God? I can think of my mother, who was just here about three months ago. She's the one who kept saying amen every 10 seconds. That, that was her. That was her, right? Um, she went from doing well according to the world's standards to a place where life got hard. All of a sudden, life got real hard, and she had nowhere to go except to call on the same Lord, Jesus Christ, that her mother and aunts used to call on. In the midst of her following the yellow brick road to hell, God plucked her, saved her, called her to a life in him. Praise God for that. There are other people I can think of inside my family, outside of my family, who are headed straight for the fiery pits of hell. Yet through some odd, out of the way, who would have thought this could happen type situation, God regenerated their hearts. And right there where they stood, they began, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. And God used them to fulfill and is using them to fulfill his purposes. Whether it's Abraham who showed cowardice, a lack of faith, and even told his wife to lie twice or Jacob, who lied to his father and stole his brother's birthright. Or Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute and had sex with her father-in-law. Or Rahab, the prostitute. Or David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Uzziah, or Manasseh. Read their stories from the slightly wicked to the extremely burn-your-own-children-in-the-fire type wickedness. There is none righteous. No, not one. And then there's Jesus. 
Jesus went to the cross for all who would believe in him. So that the every sin would be imputed to him. And his righteousness would be accredited to them. So that not only do we get to escape from the wrath to come on judgment day and beyond. But we also, because of his righteousness, get to dwell in his presence and the Father's presence forevermore. Somebody once called it a strange exchange. But it's better known as the substitutionary atonement of Jesus the Christ. Jesus is amazing. And that's an understatement. Jesus is the difference. Some say that there, there are so many religions in the world, but there's only two. There's only two. Christianity and everything else. Everybody else is up to, they're trying to earn their way to God, but you can't do it. Everybody else figures it'll, it'll weigh itself out in the end. There, there are, are, are many paths, one destination's garbage. That's all garbage. From the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never be more perfect in the eyes of God because positionally, from God, our Father's point of, of view, the impeccable righteousness of Christ has been added to your account, imputed to you, accredited to you. The impeccability of Christ, by the way, doesn't mean that Christ, he was just without sin, but it, mean, it means it was, he was not possible to sin. It was not possible for him to sin. So that from the first day you're saved to your last day on earth and beyond, you are positionally covered, positionally covered with that same righteousness of Christ. That's why Romans 5.1 says we have been justified through faith, not will be. Everybody else they're hoping they will be. I was speaking to a Jehovah's Witness on my step one day, and, and, and he's, he's talking about it's not secure. And I'm saying, so you say you have to, you're saying you have to earn it, and it'll somehow work out. He says, yes, that's what the Bible says. I said, please show me that. And, and, and he took scriptures out of context, and it was going against the, the, the omniscience of God and playing with his foreknowledge as if God is a weatherman looking at a map and telling you here's what's going to happen. Monday and Tuesday, because he can see how it's moving, and, and, and it's up to you, basically, and no, no, no. I said, so you mean to tell me that if you, I pray it doesn't happen, turn to go off of my step, you miss a step, hit your head on the concrete, and die, even in the midst of you supposedly doing God's will, you're not assured? I, I can't be. I said, that's terrible. It's such a burden that you have to be the one to earn your salvation with a God who is perfect and spotless. You can never know. So after giving him Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you can read it when you get home. After giving him Romans 10, John 6, it's like these scriptures are, are, are telling you, whether it's Paul or Jesus, that God has to do the work. God is the one who keeps you after he has saved you. He's the one who, bring, who will bring you into the presence of God. Say, it's all done. So on the cross, he was able to say, it is finished. It's finished. Rest in me. Rest in me. 
our position before Christ has been changed forever. No longer dead in trespasses. We are made alive together with Christ as Ephesians 2.5 declares. Some of you know you need Jesus. You know it. But you'd rather wait thinking you'll come when you're ready at some later date. I'll grant you, as long as you're breathing, true repentance is never too late. But I'll also warn you, late repentance is seldom true. It becomes a, a, a barrel of foxhole prayers. Lord God, if you heal me from this cancer, I'll worship you. A bunch of Jacob, if you bless me, then I'll do A, B, and C. I'll give you 10% if you bless me. So in, in, the, in the fear of facing death, you get many foxhole prayers. No doubt God can save people at that time, but it's rare. It is rare. If you walk the hospitals and you speak to people and you give them the gospel, oh yeah, I believe. You visit them a week later. Oh, oh yeah, well, um, uh, Mary, uh, is, is, I'm praying to Mary. I, we just had a conversation. You, you, you can't earn it. No question, God saves people on the hospital bed. But it's rare. It's rare. So today, today is the day. Don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised. It's not just a cliche. It's true. You watch the news. Many taken out. Massive gunfire taken out. Buses out of control taken out. Today is the day of salvation. Last thing. Every day, and I said this kind of before, every day you get up, you have to praise God. You just have to praise him. We, we are so busy, we forget to praise God. As crazy as that sounds, we do it. We go to bed with a problem. We wake up with a problem. We go back to bed with a problem. We wake up again with another problem. And on, on top of the other problem, if you wake up, you have to praise God and thank him for what you have. Thank him for what he has done. Then go bless somebody else. Love someone else while you're here. Forgive someone else while you are still breathing. Amen? You're going to get better at that. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your sovereignty, Lord God. Nothing moves unless you move it. We thank you for your, for your, for your providence, Lord. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our pain, we would know that our pain is not wasted pain because you have uh, worked out in our lives before we were born to, 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 to give us a path to righteousness and Christ-likeness. But some pain has to come so that patience will reveal itself in our hearts. And we thank you for election. Lord God, we would have never chose you. And if it, if, it, if it was up, up to us to leave you, we would because we're sinners. But I thank you that not only did you elect us, but you, you, you keep us. And you have a place reserved in heaven for us. Thank you.
Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.